This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Padesh. Today I'm in Minnesota, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you? Hi, Alan. Doing very well this evening. So many exciting things for us to talk about today. Uh, We were off last week. And we are back on today, and it's been a follow, a very interesting um, event or interesting events in Israel on a political on a political level. The country passed a budget. We've talked before about the importance of a budget, and there was a there was thought that the budget wouldn't pass this time, and it would create uh, the coalition to collapse. But that wasn't the case. The budget did pass, and it passed actually, I think, four or five days earlier than expected. So any thoughts on the budget? Um, a, a few. Um, I would say that it's a, it's a little, I don't, I don't want to say it too harshly. There is something disheartening about how budgets get passed here, you know? Um, the way in which the there's there's no attempt to hide i guess the to what level the budgets are very much the product of negotiation and you know quid pro quo and that there are specific budget lines that are in there only for the purpose of convincing somebody to vote for a budget that they otherwise wouldn't particularly, you know, feel feel great about. Um, let me ask so there's you something question. tough to swallow with that. Okay, let me ask you a quick question just on that. When you said quid pro quo, does that go back to how Netanyahu created the coalition to begin with? They promised different parties different entities, different things, and it manifested itself significantly in the budget process? Yes. And I think it even goes further than that, right? The It's not enough that people twisted the prime minister's arm, let's say, to join the coalition and needed to be offered various ministries or various jobs or various perks. Now they get to do that again with the budget. And it's not like, you know, okay, you made me a minister, so now I'll vote and do whatever you want. It's yet another opportunity to say, well, if you want my vote, then give extra money to this cause or uh, shift the budget in this direction or put in a budget line that's just called coalition funding and is specifically for the purpose of making everybody in the coalition happy so that they can continue to to govern together. So. And these aren't yeah. small. And these aren't small amounts of money that are being distributed to these. No, issues. they're not. I think that specific line of "quote unquote" coalition funding is the largest that's ever been part of a budget. Um, so, at the risk of sounding too jaded, there's that aspect of the budget. Now, there's also the question of okay. But the actual stuff that's in it, like what, uh, 
And there's there's some debate even about that. The members of Knesset that spoke uh, shortly before the vote started, and the vote, by the way, was an all-night vote, right? Started at 9.30 in the evening in Israel and didn't conclude until, I think, something like 6 the next morning. How voting can possibly take that long, I really still don't understand, but okay. I kept I kept watching you know, the voting, which is, you know, as I've talked about before, it's kind of a hobby of mine to turn on the Knesset like we do in America with C-SPAN. Mm-hmm. I was watching in the back of the room, there's the, the, the clock. And it says, you know, 12.04 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and at 3 a.m., I was like, I, I, I don't know how they're doing this. And I kept looking at different members of Knesset to see if they were demonstrating any fatigue. And by the time I stopped watching, I didn't notice anybody being tired. They were all still engaged and they were still voting. Yeah, they, they must serve a lot of strong coffee at the Knesset. I don't know exactly how they do it. Um, it was a long vote. But the, the speakers who spoke directly before the voting started really seemed to say totally opposite things about what is and isn't in the budget and disagreed with one another about what is in the budget. Not what the impact of that will be, right? Which it makes sense. And we would expect that they're going to have different views about whether what's in the budget is good or not, or good for Israel or not. But they literally disagreed on whether whole sections of the budget exist, um, which is also a bit disheartening. (laughs) Um, But maybe we'll just have to open up the budget and start reading and figure out what's really in there. Well, so that's my question. So is there an online version of the budget that the average Israeli can click on and see all all the many thousands of pages of the budget and how it impacts the country? So that is an excellent question. And yes, is the very short answer. Um, until a few years ago, all of the budget information was technically accessible to the public but you couldn't actually see it all in one place and it was very difficult to find and certainly no lay person could understand it. And so then uh, actually an individual, a private citizen, um, had the idea to aggregate all of the national budget information in one place. So pulling from existing publicly accessible resources and putting them all in one place and uh, created a website called the Keys to the Budget, which now exists and is a much more accessible way for people to look and see the actual numbers. You know, what has what's in the budget for each for each ministry for each topic year over year. So it, it is technically accessible. I would still say that it is difficult for most people to parse, you know, what is an increase versus you know, a shift and uh, the names change and now all the ministries have changed names again. So it's it's not the easiest to figure out, but it is it is accessible. So we will put that link in our notes, but I have to say it's in Hebrew, not in English. Uh, Correct. But, the, but the numbers, you should be able to understand the numbers, just not the, the meaning behind the numbers. Um, and we will not spend time uh, translating the, the budget just so people know that. But um, you can learn a lot about the budget and the changes. It's so hard to even follow, though. For example, right, just to give like one small example. So if you look at the budget for the um, 
Ministry of Environmental Protection. So their budget has increased the from 22 to 23 and from 23 to 24, it's increasing year over year. However, if you look, you dig a little bit deeper and you see that actually the increase comes from two special projects, which are not things that are meant necessarily to continue after that. And that despite these increases, Israel is not on track to meet any of the goals that we've set as part of, you know, international agreements for climate change. So maybe it's a little bit more money, but it's not enough to achieve the goal. So is it enough? Is it not? I mean, it's very complicated. It depends who you ask. So it depends on the position of who's leading the environmental protection Ministry of Israel, how that money is used, and if it does make an impact in changing climate challenges in the country or in the world. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one to pull out. We could talk a lot about the budget, and I hope that we continue to do that over the course of our podcasts. But how does the budget um, being approved impact the judicial reform issue that's out there that we talk about? So it definitely impacts it in the sense that for Prime Minister Netanyahu, passing the budget feels like a huge win, right? Um, And uh, he is sort of riding now a wave of power and, um, and positive feelings, you know, in his camp around having been able to, to pass the budget. And he, you know, has said publicly in a, in several places since passing the the budget just last week that you know this is a sure sign that a his coalition is going to last for four years, which is a little optimistic since I don't think that ever happens in Israel. But okay, um, and b that now he can turn his attention back to judicial reform, which does feel a little bit like a slap in the face to all of the people that have been working very hard to negotiate, um, you know, over the past seven weeks, since before the Passover break. Uh, We'll see how much of that is bluster and how much of that really is an attempt to just continue with the line of of reforms that, that were being passed up until seven weeks ago. Are you still seeing or the rise of people demonstrating uh, after Shabbat on Saturday nights against judicial reform or the numbers still out there, are people still gathering around the country? How is it being digested by the average person in Israel? In Israel, So people are definitely still protesting. I don't know actually what the numbers are. Um, I would say that people are to, to a little bit kind of waiting and seeing. Right. People will come out and continue to protest if they see that the negotiations are not being successful. Um, So I I think that if Netanyahu is serious about just pushing through more judicial reforms, then we certainly have not seen the last or the height of the protests. Well, we'll keep our eyes on that. And I take it you have not continued to go to the protests in Jerusalem, or you have or you have not? or I have not been in the past few weeks. 
but uh, that does not mean that I will not feel the the need to return to it. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. No, I, no, that's okay. Yeah, no, I as as we've talked about before, there's a lot of energy that takes place uh, at these demonstrations, and they have changed people's attitudes and insight into what's going on. I want to share with you um, something that took place the morning of of Shavuos in America. I'm not quite sure it made its way to Israel, but the White House announced uh, a national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. Have you heard anything about that? It, It did not make the news here. That's kind of surprising but not surprising at the same time. So let me just kind of share with you a little bit. And then again, I'll put this in a link in our uh, notes, but it, there has been an increase of anti-Semitism and a lot of you know, interest in American Jewish community to, to discuss and address it. Um, so I just want to read from the strategy why this came about. Uh, And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the pillars that they have put forth. So it goes like this. Hate and the violence it fuels are on the rise in America. Hate crimes targeted violence and acts of harassment, including online abuse, have increased in recent years, eroding our democracy, decreasing public trust, and putting so many American communities at risk. We have seen this unfold from bomb threats at historically black colleges and universities to rising hate crimes against Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic, pandemic, to escalating threats against women and LGBTQI plus Americans, to persistent bias and violence against Muslim, Sikh, South Asian communities, to harassment of Jews and attacks on Jewish communities. Anti-Semitism is often called the oldest hatred, yet it remains all too present today, including in America, Acts of anti-Semitism are on the rise, including online harassment, vandalism, bomb threats, and violent attacks against Jewish institutions and Jewish people. In 2022, Federal Bureau of Investigation Director Christopher Wray noted that American Jews account for 2.4% of the population, U.S. population, but anti-Semitism drove 63% of reported religiously motivated hate crimes. Perhaps most alarming, anti-Semitism has become increasingly normalized in American society. So I, I share those opening remarks because I think it does demonstrate an overall view of how anti-Semitism has increased in the public space over the past several years. And so the motivation to do something about it is significant. And as it approaches and addresses all hate in America, this is one way to minimize or to combat it. Uh, If you combat anti-Semitism, which is the oldest hatred, you're able to educate across the different lines of of hatred that exist. And so is that is that the philosophy, meaning that there the idea is to have this one plan and strategy and it will then somehow trickle out to the other groups or will there be plans to combat other types of hatred as well? You know? That's a good question. And since I'm not at the table while this is being addressed, I was not invited to the White House to to be a part of the next time. Next time. But I I think that as we've talked about in the past, you know, when you do a uh, conversations about anti-Semitism and as the oldest hatred, we refer to it as the canary in, in the coal mine, that if we can 
address anti-Semitism, we also at the same time are addressing different types of hatred against other minority groups. So it's that educational process that is important. And so the strategy advances a whole of society approach to countering anti-Semitism resting on four pillars. And the last pillar does address what you just mentioned. So increase awareness and understanding of anti-Semitism, including its threat to America and broaden appreciation of Jewish American heritage. Number two, improve safety and security for Jewish, Jewish communities. Three, reverse the normalization of anti-Semitism and counter anti-Semitic discrimination. I would say the bullet point three is the one that has been most uh, prevalent in recent uh, days and years. And then number four, build cross-community solidarity and collective action to counter hate. So again, it's the overall approach to countering hate. So we'll have to see how that pans out. But I thought it was important to share with you for two reasons. One, this was announced on the morning of Shavuos in America. Shavuos mm-hmm. had already started in Israel by the time this was released on the morning of the 25th. But it may also has been determined or been designated as Jewish American Heritage Month. I don't know if we talked about that before. So, you know, there are all these points of light that are putting Influ- influence and emphasis on anti-Semitism and the Jewish community. We'll mm-hmm. have how it pans out. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, I, not necessarily for you. I guess I can research it, but uh, I have lots of questions about, like, how does this work? I mean, first of all, I have no idea whether the White House has ever released such strategies before. Has there ever been a strategy to combat anti-Semitism? Has there ever been a strategy to combat misogyny or you know racism i mean there there have been endemic you know problems in the realm of hatred before um and i'd be curious to know whether a, a national strategy to combat something like that i know i remember there was the war on drugs and there right there've been national big campaigns or getting kids to read but I don't know whether something like a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism has existed before. So that's one thing I would ask. And then also, you know, what does this mean? I I assume if it's a national strategy, that means there's some sort of funding behind it. Do they open an office? Is there someone who's, you know, the head of this? Is there director of combating anti-Semitism in the United States? Um, I'd love to know more about how it works. so, So those are all good questions and I will do some work between now and our podcast recording next week to look at that. I think those are great questions. I have to be honest. I just, you know, it was announced on um, Thursday and then it was mm-hmm. now it's a holiday weekend. I will dig deeper into it and be able to discuss it more. I just, I found it to be very interesting to your point, you know, is this a first effort? Uh, are there other efforts out there to combat hate and bigotry that the white house has undertaken? I, I'm pretty sure there have been other uh, strategies. Um, there, is, there is an office of, of combating anti-Semitism that Deborah Lipstadt now holds, and others have held. Mm-hmm. So let's look more into the history on that. Uh, I, I think now, you know, we talk about something as impactful as um, anti-Semitism. I, I need to ask you a really serious question. We just finished the holiday of Shavuos, or Shavuot, Shavuot if, as we learned in the, the Midwest. Um, what, what kind of uh, takeaways did you have 
from your Shavuos experience in cheesecake. Did you have an opportunity to sample many types of cheesecake, Liz? I thought you were going to stop the sentence there and say, you know, what kind of experience did you have? And then I was going to have to say, but I know you really just mean, what did I eat? Uh, But you made it easier because you just said, what was my cheesecake experience? Um, Clearly, some cheesecakes were had. um, And in our household, both the traditional, what I think of as a more American baked cheesecake and the Israeli no-bake cheesecake. We also had a vegan cheesecake. So we had various options. Um, And for those listeners who have not yet tried it, I got to say the no-bake Israeli cheesecake has a lot going for it. It's, uh, It's pretty easy to make. It's nice to not have to turn on the oven to make it, especially now that we're in summer weather. Um, and it's very tasty, although I don't know how easy it would be to recreate in the States because you don't really have what we here in Israel call white cheese. Um, and I'm not sure what the closest substitute would be. It's not cream cheese. It's not sour cream. It's not yogurt. It's like a very mild, it's the consistency of sour cream, but it doesn't have that flavor. So we'll have to figure out what the best uh, equivalent would be. And then all of our American listeners can go off and make no-bake cheesecakes. So can you provide us a recipe for that? And we'll put it in our... I can absolutely provide you with a recipe. But uh, yes, but it won't do people a lot of good unless we figure out what's the substitute for yeah, white I, cheese. I'd have, we'd have to do some culinary research on that one. Uh, well, um, any other thoughts or comments you want to share before we sign off? I am um, any other thoughts, any upcoming holidays, any un- upcoming festivals that you're going to participate or visit or attend? Well, we are entering what is the I don't know if there's a official name for it, but I think of it as a very specific segment of the calendar year, which is the last month of the school year. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, kids feel very differently about getting out the door, going to any extracurriculars, teachers like expectations are so low right now. It's like if you show up and are halfway dressed, that's great. Um, so we're we're kind of officially in that that part of the year where we have to get kids to hang on for like four more weeks of reasonable school behavior and then it'll be all wild what in Israel is called Chofesh Agadol, the big vacation, big which vacation. is summer break. I have a technical question to ask, and I'm not sure you can answer it. Since you talk about the, the energy that takes place in the last month of the school year, do the schools and teachers and students have to make up the days of strikes that the teachers went on during this period, or they're just counted as part of the the curriculum or part of the so so yeah so like uh, similar to the way it works in the states that I think most school districts have um, a minimum number of school days it's often like 180 that they build in a few extra so that even if you have snow days or something like that you've still met the requirement you don't have to tack on days you wouldn't need to do that unless you've really had an unusual number of days off for whatever reason in Israel it's exactly the same 
their, you know, the school calendar is padded with enough extra days so that should we have snow days, much less common here, or strikes or some other uh, something that prevents some of the school days, there's still enough days in the year that nothing gets added. Um, when we had major differences, of course, during COVID, you know, days were added. I mean, that was a whole different thing. But in a regular school year, which this one has been, uh, there, I don't think there will be need to add any extra days. So I think it's a little interesting that in America, in the Midwest especially, we do build in snow days. And Israel builds in strike days. That's exciting. Yeah. We all have our thing. Well, Liz, I I think uh, this was a good conversation. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening into our podcast, Israel Rebound. We continue to get more and more listeners and more and more downloads. So we're on the right track. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. This has been Israel Rebound.